wreaked havoc in Colombia for over 50 years. Mauricio was a former FARC soldier. He could tell you about their violent, murderous rampages conducted throughout Colombia because he participated in them. The large coffee plantation owners didn't feel like the Colombian army was doing a good enough job protecting them from the FARC, so they hired mercenaries that later became the paramilitary force. Originally organized to defend these property owners, they became more violent and more dangerous than the FARC itself. Osman is a former paramilitary soldier. He could also tell you about the atrocities they conducted throughout Colombia because he participated in them. Both of these young men have battle scars on their body. Mauricio walks with a cane and a very pronounced limp from injuries inquired when fighting against the paramilitary enemy. At one time, these two young men were sworn arch enemies, each one trying to hunt down, torture, and kill the other. Today, they're students at our Bible school in Colombia, teaming up to plant a church together in Bogota, co-laborers for the gospel. And that's something that only the gospel of Jesus Christ can do. Amen. And that kind of leads me into my message this morning. Let me give you a little uh, format of what we're going to do. I want to share with you an update on what's happening in our ministry. But before I do that, I want to share a mission message since this is Missions Sunday. And I thank you for the opportunity to be here. I uh, got to meet Pastor's family. Um, when they said, who, he said, uh, who's thankful for Pastor Britt and his family? I looked at him, I said, well, I'm thankful for the pastor, but I'm not that thankful for his family. <laughs> Just kidding, though. Uh, but anyway, it's a joy to be here with you. I enjoyed teaching Sunday school, and I enjoy being here, and I ask, uh, thank you for your attention this morning. So uh, what I want to share with you is this, why do we need missionaries. Well, there's lots of reasons, but I think the main reason is the world desperately needs Jesus. There are three things that only Jesus can do, and that's one I want to share with you this morning. Uh, the first thing that only Jesus can do is, well, Jesus alone can save, and I think all of us know that. There are lots of verses in the Bible that teach us that Jesus alone can save. I like John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I like the way Paul says it in 1 Timothy. There's one God and one mediator uh, between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. But I think the verse that states it 
most clearly is this verse in, in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. It's a verse that's pretty, um, pretty uh, well known. Some of you might have it memorized. If you don't have it memorized, I'd like you to ask this. It's one of those good verses to memorize. This is Peter speaking uh, before the council, and he says to them, Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given unto men whereby we must be saved. And I'd like to encourage you as a church, let's, let's write that verse in our hearts. Neither is there salvation in any other. There's no other name under heaven given unto men whereby we must be saved. If you truly believe that verse, then you've got to have a heart for missions. You've got to understand that, that Buddha, Confucius, Muhammad, while they very well might have been religious men, they lead every one of their followers to a hopeless eternity without Christ. Christ alone can save. When I think about testimonies of people that have been saved, I've, I know hundreds of them. Probably my favorite is Phyllis, is my wife. And I love this picture of her because uh, she looks good there. Um, I haven't seen her for a month, and, and uh, so she might look a little bit better to me. But uh, <laughs> she was raised in a Church of God pastor's home. This was back in the day, some of you might remember, when everything was a sin. She couldn't wear pants. She couldn't cut her hair. She couldn't wear makeup. Um, when she got to be 16 years old, she started uh, hanging with some of the wrong people, a lot of them right in church, uh, started smoking, started drinking some, started experimenting with drugs. On her 18th birthday, the very day she moved out of the house, her parents crying, begging her not to go, and she looked at him and said, I'm fed up with you, I'm fed up with your stupid church, and I'm fed up with all of your stupid rules. I'm going out to have fun. She spent the next three years of her life just down this slippery slide into a life of immorality, addiction. 21 years old, she was driving down the road, interstate, I'm not interstate, Highway 64 in North Carolina in a Ford Pinto. And she said the Lord, the presence of the Lord just manifested in the car. And to this day, she's not sure if it was an audible voice, but she heard it so clearly. And the Lord said to her, Phyllis, you were looking for life. Look what a mess you've made of your life. Now give me an opportunity let me show you what I can do with your life. And right there, driving down the road, in a Ford Pinto of all places, she raised her hand and said, yes, Lord, come into my life. She rode the window down, threw the drugs out, get arrested for littering today, and then drove back home, told her mom and dad that she was saved. First time she told me this testimony, uh, when I heard it, I was crying, and I thought in my heart, man, that's the woman I want to marry. Things don't work out well on the honeymoon. At least I can tell her, hey, tell me that testimony one more time. <laughs> uh, but uh, sure enough, it took me about a year to convince her to marry me. And, uh, and we've been married now for 35 years. And I still 
lover testimony, a powerful testimony that shows that Jesus alone can save. All right? Next point I'd like to make is Jesus alone can dignify. And again, lots of verses in the Bible that talk about how he dignifies. I want to encourage you this afternoon when you get home, go to Ezekiel chapter 16. Read the first half of Ezekiel chapter 16. There you'll learn how God dignifies. And he's talking there about the Jewish people, but really that's the Old Testament people of God. If you, if you go move it up to New Testament times, he's talking about us. And what God says there in Ezekiel chapter 16, when you were born, you were abandoned by your parents. Nobody wanted you. You were laying in the street in your own blood. And people passed by and, and, and nobody had compassion on you. But I saw you and I reached down and I washed you and I clothed you and I adorned you and I took care of you and I provided for you. And it's a beautiful story of how the Lord finds us in our sin and dignifies us. Uh, I love this verse in Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 13, one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. But now you, uh, who at one time were far, were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He dignifies us. And um, again, lots of stories I could think about uh, in, in how he dignifies. Uh, but my favorite, I think, is uh, the story of Elking Estabes. Elking was, well, in Bogota, there are hundreds of thousands of street people. Most of them are addicted to cocaine. A few years back, Elking was one of them, living on the streets, sleeping on a piece of cardboard, unshaved, unbathed, unwanted, completely addicted to drugs. Through the ministry of one of our churches that provided a shower, a change of clothes, and a hot meal for these street people, Elking came in to the fellowship hall, got a shower, got a change of clothes, had a hot meal, and the pastor, close friend of mine, Esmeralda, approached him uh, and, and said to him, Elking, if you're ever needing a shower, if you're ever needing a meal, you're welcome to come back. And Elking looked at the pastor, and he said, Pastor, with all due respect, I don't need a shower, and I don't need a meal. What I need is to get off drugs. And the pastor embraced him, shared with him, encouraged him to come back to church. He came back, ended up giving his heart to the Lord, and he was instantly delivered from drugs. Just a few months later, he was at our Bible school preparing for a life of ministry. And one of the most special moments in my entire ministry was the day that, uh, that he was baptized. I, I was privileged to help Pastor Esmeralda in the baptismal service. And as we baptized him, his mother stood there weeping and wailing and thanking God for saving her wayward son. It was so impacting to her, she gave her heart to the Lord. And today, both of them are steadfast in the Lord. Elking ended up meeting Angela, Angela who's a beautiful young lady. Uh, they got married. And you're talking about someone who was living on the streets. I mean, he didn't have a home. He didn't have a job. And, and he won this beautiful young lady. You talk about the Lord dignifying. And the Lord blessed them with a handsome son. Today, they are serving as pastors 
in Bogota, and, and it just shows how the Lord dignifies. Now, you might not have ever been hooked on drugs. You might not have ever been a street person, but all of us were lost, and all of us needed to be dignified. And the Lord Jesus dignified us, and he alone can dignify. And if you'll study other religions, you'll see that none of them approach what Christianity uh, does in the life of a person to, to, to dignify them. And then number three, the Lord alone can transform. He transforms us. This is the very first verse in the Bible that I ever memorized when I was a brand new Christian. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Most of you probably know it. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. He transforms us. Uh, and uh, I think my favorite testimony of transformation, while there's dozens of them, I think my favorite is Esteban and Maria Vargas. They're pastors in Lima, Peru. The first time I met them, I preached in their church. Afterwards, I went to their home for lunch. And while we're having lunch, Sister Maria says to me, Brother Wayne, I'm a widow. My first husband died. And I remember thinking, I said, wow, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. And she said, well, I'm not. My first husband was a drunkard, and he was abusive. He would beat me and the children. He'd lock us out of the house in the cold mountain air. He never bought us nice things, wasted all of his money on alcohol. He embarrassed us. We find him sleeping in the streets in his own vomit, and I'm so glad he died. And now my second husband takes care of me. He loves me. He buys us nice things. He treats us with dignity and with respect, and he's a pastor. And I remember thinking to myself, well, that's a nice story, but I think you might need some therapy <laughs> to get over your first husband. I thought that she was talking about two different people, but she went on to clarify how her first husband died when he came to the feet of Jesus. And then went on to tell me the testimony of how he got saved and sanctified, dignified, and completely transformed this abusive, drunken husband into a godly, loving man of God and a pastor. Wow, that's transformation. And the Lord can transform all of us. Uh, some of us might be dealing with uh, issues of anger, issues of... Um, of, of addiction uh, or, or whatever, remember that the Lord transforms. Amen? Now, in the 1800s, England was the number one missions sending country in the world. Today, thankfully, it's the United States. And uh, one of the areas they were targeting were the islands of the South Pacific, where indigenous communities that were literally headhunters, cannibals, were being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And believe it or not, there were anthropologists back in England who criticized missionaries, claiming that they were causing these rich cultural groups of the earth to become extinct. A newspaper in England published an article 
condemning missionaries, suggesting that they should stop trying to convert these cultural or ethnic groups. Well, there was a world traveler back then who had seen firsthand this transformation of what they called savages. So he wrote a rebuttal to the newspaper, and I want to share with you a paragraph from his letter. He says this, the transformation of the savages, and I beg your pardon that, that, that he called them savages, but that was the word they used back then. The transformation of the savages on the islands of the South Pacific is not something that should be taken lightly. If you by chance are shipwrecked on an unknown coast, you will pray to God that a missionary had gone before you. The fact of whether or not a missionary had preceded you will determine the difference between being invited to dinner and being the dinner. Now, as a missionary, boy, I dig that statement. Being invited to dinner or being the dinner, that's talking about transformation. Incidentally, that world traveler was none other than Charles Darwin. And a good question to ask this morning is if Charles Darwin the father of atheistic evolution, if he could recognize the importance and the value of missionaries, how much more should we, the people of God? Amen? Followers of Jesus. So I want to encourage us to remember, remember that Jesus alone can save. Jesus alone can dignify. And Jesus alone can can transform. Now, before I give you uh, an update, I want to just ask you to close your eyes for a moment. I want to have a time of prayer together. If there's anybody here that you've never asked Jesus to be your Savior, I'd like to ask you to pray with me. Uh, Lord Jesus, we come before you this morning asking you to save us. We recognize that we cannot save ourselves. We recognize that we're sinners. We believe that only you can save. We ask you to come into our heart, dignify us, and transform us in Jesus' name. Now, if you are here and you're dealing with maybe uh, a low self-esteem, if you're struggling with self-worth, I want to remind you that Jesus can dignify. He can, he can make you worthy. When I became a Christian, back when I was 19 years old, I had so much acne that my pimples had pimples. They called me my pizza face. My nickname, and I'm, I'm not kidding, my nickname was No Brain Wayne. Hey, No Brain! I scored a 12 on my ACT test. That's about as low as you can get. I struggled with a very low self-esteem, but Jesus dignified me, showed me who I was, helped me to apply myself, ended up graduating from college uh, with honors, got my master's degree with, with high honors because Jesus dignifies. If you need to be reminded of that, let's just pray this morning. Father, we come before you this morning. And I recognize that in a church that's large, there's bound to be some people here that are struggling with issues, 
struggling with uh, their self-worth, maybe suffering from a low self-esteem. I pray that you'd remind us of who we are in Christ. And I thank you that your word says we are complete in you. And I thank you that you dignified. And in the story of the prodigal son, you, you brought out the robe and the ring and the sandals. And in the same way, you dignify us, build us up, and help us to recognize who we are in Christ. I pray in Jesus' name. If you're needing an area of your life to be transformed this morning, I think back of an area in my life, it was anger. When I became a Christian, I, I had major temper problems that I, that I learned from my parents. And when I became a Christian, it actually went away. I thought it was gone, but it was just lying dormant until my children were born. And then it woke up with a fury. And I remember just having fits of rage and yelling at my children. And sometimes even one of the saddest moments in my life is I remember slapping my daughter in the face. Slapping my daughter in the face. And it was in church that I heard a message. And the pastor said, listen, you can consult any sociologist, any psychologist, and they will tell you, Dad, your daughter, when she gets married, she's going to look for somebody like you. She's going to marry somebody like you. And I remember sitting in the pew and just crying and saying, God, please don't let my Sheena marry somebody like me. And it dawned on me, man, I need to be transformed. And I went down to the altar. I'd already been a Christian. I'd been a Christian for years. But there was an area in my life that needed to be transformed. And I went down to the altar that morning and I broke. And I said, Jesus, take this anger away from me. Help me to get over it. And the Lord heard my prayer. And he delivered me. And he, and he helped me. And, uh, and, I, and I can testify this morning that my daughters were not raised in an abusive uh, home. They were raised in a calm, loving Christian home because Jesus transforms. If you've got an area in your life where you're struggling with something and you need transformation, let's just pray. Father, in Jesus' name, we come before you thanking you that you're the God who transforms. And those of us that are struggling with issues, maybe it's anger, maybe it's addiction, maybe it's something else, I pray that you would just move and remind us that you are the God who transforms, who makes all things new. Help us, Lord, to never say, well, I'm just like this. Help us to recognize that we need to be transformed and lay these broken pieces at the foot of your altar. Restore us. Transform us. Make us vessels of honor. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Remember, Jesus alone can save. Jesus alone can dignify. Jesus alone can transform. And that's why we need missionaries. And, and that's what Phyllis and I are all about. Uh, 
Now, last year when I was here, if you would have asked me, uh, Brother Wayne, how long are you going to be in Columbia? I would have told you, man, until we retire. We were absolutely loving it in Columbia. But in April, I went to marry this young man here, A. Saul. He was one of our graduates. We had 150 graduates in Peru when we were there for eight years. And as the Bible school director, I'm not supposed to have favorites. But if I could have favorites, unquestionably, A. Saul would be my favorite. So I went there to, to officiate his wedding, and while I was there, the overseer met with me and asked me, Brother Wayne, would you and Phyllis consider coming back to Peru? The Bible school that we had started had been closed down for about five or six years, and he said, we desperately need to get that reopened. And uh, so my wife and I prayed about it, and to be honest with you, uh, I wasn't real excited about going back, but we felt like the Lord was leading us to go back to Peru. And so December 5th, we made the move back to Peru. And uh, what we're going to be doing now is we're going to be serving as directors of the school in Peru. We've appointed directors of the school in Colombia. And then we're going to kind of be presiding over the two schools. And uh, I'm going to tell you more about that in a minute. Uh, but I want to just tell you that we've, we finished up our time in Colombia on a very high note. Uh, we had a fantastic year. I'd love to tell you about the entire year, but for time's sake, I'm just going to focus on the last three weeks. All of these things happened in the last three weeks that we were there. One, we had our largest graduating class, 17 graduates from our three-year Bible college. And that brought our total up to 80, 80 graduates, and 85% of those graduates are in full-time ministry. Then we, they, a lot of these 80 graduates got together and surprised the socks off of us and had this uh, massive party for us, a farewell party, and that was nice. Then we had our farewell motorcycle trip. And incidentally, some of these motorcycles were purchased by, uh, by your church. A couple years ago, we asked you to do that. We tried to get motorcycles for our graduates. That's the main mode of transportation in Columbia, a whole lot cheaper than an automobile. And so a lot of our graduates came into graduation on their motorcycles. And so I call this my motorcycle gang. And uh, we made our farewell motorcycle trip the day after graduation. And we traveled to uh, a place called Pope Bayan to participate in the kickoff event of our 31st church plant, being pastored by Brian and Jessica, two of our graduates. And uh, just want to call your attention to the fact today there are 31 Church of God congregations in Colombia that weren't there 11 years ago when we arrived. And your church made that happen, helps to make that happen through your faithful support. We did three weddings uh, in the last three weeks. Uh, these are couples that met, fell in love, and got married right there at the Bible school. The last wedding was a double wedding, and that's always been a dream of mine as a minister to officiate a double wedding. And how many of you know the Lord gives you the desires of your heart? Well, I got to officiate a double wedding. And uh, then we had two baby dedications. Again, these are graduates. They met, fell in love, got married at our Bible school. Now they're out pastoring churches that they planted, and we go to visit them and see them excelling in ministry, uh, happy in marriage, having children, and what a, you can imagine the thrill of being able to dedicate their children. Then we had the leadership in 
Columbia appoint this couple. They were teachers at the Bible school. And one of the things we were concerned about was, well, the school in Columbia isn't self-supporting. We left Peru and the school closed down. Well, we don't want to go back to Peru and open this school at the cost of losing the school in Colombia. So we got the leadership in Colombia to appoint this couple. They were teachers at the Bible school for, for nine years, have a heart for the school, understand the vision of the school. We believe they're going to be tremendous directors of the school. So it was nice to have them appointed. And then the Leadership in Colombia had a farewell dinner for us and honored us, and, and, and that was nice. And, and then we finished our ministry with a massive vow renewal service. One of our former students invited us to go to his church and do a weekend marriage seminar, and we culminated the seminar with a mass vow renewal service. My wife and I in May celebrated 35 years of marriage together, so we stood there. Uh, at the altar, and there were 25 couples down, lined up down the aisle, and my wife and I renewed our vows. Now, she was a little bit, uh, a little bit uh, hesitant to renew her vows with me, but, uh, <laughs> but she went ahead and went through with it. So we renewed our vows, and then these couples followed suit and, and repeated after us, and it was very moving because I started kind of getting teary-eyed after 35 years with my lovely wife, and you know how tears tend to be contagious, so when I started crying, then the men are repeating their vows, and I recommit, and then they start crying. That made me cry more. Before it was said and done, I couldn't even look at my wife. I was looking down while I'm saying the vows, and when it was over, my wife's like, sweetheart, you didn't even look at me. I'm like, man, sweetheart, I'm sorry. I couldn't. It was making me cry. But what a great way to finish up our ministry, 11 years in Columbia, and culminate it with this uh, massive vow renewal service. And, uh, and then that was on December 2nd, and then on December 5th, we flew to Peru with two suitcases and a carry-on each. And whatever didn't fit in the four suitcases and two carry-ons, it got left behind in in Colombia, and uh, the Lord just blessed us tremendously right from the, right at the get-go, right at right in the airport. I realized, man, God, if I had any doubts about coming back to Peru, they were definitely eliminated. Just such a peace about being back there, and the Lord blessed us, helped us to find a beautiful apartment. And this is the Bible school. This was the Bible school 11 years ago, five-story building that, that that we had built there, and uh, a, a great school just flourishing 150 graduates, 35 churches that had been planted by our graduates. Uh, great school. But uh, how many of you know Jesus uses people to build his church? How many of you know that when people are involved, sometimes it gets ugly? Well, unfortunately, it got kind of ugly, and there were some overseers in Peru that didn't want Americans to be directing the school, so they kind of pushed us out. And when we left the school a few years later, it closed down, and it wasn't well kept, and it was basically abandoned, and it's just completely deteriorated. It's close to the ocean, and the salt in the air uh, just ate a lot of the stuff or deteriorated it. And so this was the condition that we found it in. Uh, and basically everything needed to be remodeled. This is the wall that goes around the school, and you need a wall to protect it from, from unwanted people coming in. And, and you can see that it's just, I'm just completely 
the, the, the metal is just all rusted out. It wasn't even salvageable. We had to tear it down and put in a new wall. But what encouraged us is that, remember, we had 150 graduates. Many of them are in Lima, and the graduates in Lima have come every single day to help us to sand and to strip and to, and to varnish and paint. And uh, so it, that's encouraging to see that these graduates, they're now serving as pastors, and they have such a heart to get this school back up and running that they're donating their time and, uh, and helping us. And we're on target to have this school operational once again in March, March 4th, which is their fall. That's when classes will start. And then something else that was very encouraging to us, I told you there were 35 church plants Seven of those church plants were in Lima, and we got to visit those. And um, these are some of the churches. And the cool thing is all seven of those churches that were planted, they're still there, and, uh, and they're, they're actually thriving. This is Rebecca. Uh, she really should not be a pastor today. Her father was a Church of God pastor who was murdered, by, brutally murdered by the Shining Pathway terrorist group. They actually cut him up into pieces and threw the pieces off a cliff. She found out about this when she was 16 years old, and she said to herself, Well, Lord, if that's the way that you take care of your servants, don't count on me. I will never serve you. But the Lord dealt with her, and... Uh, she ended up coming to our Bible schools, telling us that she wanted to follow in her father's steps. And when she graduated, the top student in the first graduating class, she said she wanted to go back to, the, to her hometown where her father had been martyred and plant a church there. And she did that. And then a few years later, she returned, fell in love with one of her graduates, uh, Joan. They got married and, uh, and planted this church in Lima. And they're running uh, right at 100 now. And then this was a baby dedication in one of the other churches by Omar. This is uh, Dermali. His was the last church that I preached in 11 years ago when I left Peru. The first church that I preached in when I came back, and I, I didn't even remember that, but he called me when I got back, and he said, Wayne, I don't know if you remember, but you preached your last sermon in my church, and I want you to preach your ser first sermon when you come back. And, and then he told me when I got there, I did not remember this, but he said, this young man got saved that night 11 years ago when you preached your final sermon. He gave his heart to the Lord. Today, he's my church clerk, my right arm. And I was like, praise the Lord. This is Oscar. He's another one that should not be in ministry. He got saved in prison. Went right out of prison straight to the Bible school. Ended up being a, a wonderful student, graduated, planted a church in Lima. Dermali's church is running 250 now. Oscar's church is running 90. And, uh, and then this is Samuel. Uh, him and his wife met at our Bible school, fell in love, got married. They're, pa they're pastoring this church that they planted. And then this is a Saul. He's the guy that I went there to marry. Incidentally, if things don't go well in Peru for us, it's his fault. Uh, but he was Rebecca's brother. His father was killed by the Shining Pathway terrorist group. And Asaul had a very tough life. When he was 18 months old, they lived in a mountain area, and they would cook in an open fire right in the, in the, in the kitchen in the house, a dirt floor, and they dug a pit and built a fire in there and would cook over it. And he was kicking around a ball, a piece of fruit, and he fell into a pot of boiling potatoes when he was 18 months old. Three-quarters of his body was, was burned, uh, 
and uh, he's just completely scarred from one end of the body to the other. He's got scars. And uh, growing up, they called him Scarface, had a real low self-esteem. His sister died when he was seven. When he was 13, his father was brutally murdered. Uh, When he was 14, he looked up into heaven one day and said, God, I don't know what I ever did to get on your bad side, to have all these bad things happen to me. While others choose to serve you, I will never serve you. That year, Phyllis and I arrived in Peru. I just got a heart for Esaul, taught him how to throw a football, taught him how to throw a baseball. I take him hiking with me. I take him rock climbing. And uh, he says that I tricked him to go into the ministry. (laughs) But anyway, he's in ministry today. He planted this church. He was in our last graduating class just before we left. And he planted this church, and he's running over 100 today in attendance. And, and, and there he is with his lovely pregnant wife. Uh, so we were excited to see that these churches are still up and running. And if I can just bore you with a few statistics. The Church of God in Peru is divided up into districts. In Lima, there are six districts, which means there are six district churches, six district pastors. Five of the six district churches are churches that were planted by our students. Five of the six district pastors are graduates of our Bible school. And then the overseer of Metropolitan Lima is a graduate from our Bible school. So you can see how effective it was, and and you can understand how thrilled we are to be back. Okay, So my wife and I appreciate so much our partnership with West Ward Church. I'm not sure if you're aware, but last year you guys gave over $6,000 to our ministry to help us uh, with these Bible schools. And uh, we by all means want this partnership to continue. So there are three things that I'd like to ask you to do for us this year. And uh, a couple of them you can do this morning. One is I've got a book on mission stories. It's called Unforgettable Stories of Hope from the mission field. Some of the stories you heard about in this sermon are, are in this book. My wife and I wrote it, and we thought, man, the Lord just blessed us with a 30 uh, years, uh, 35 years on the mission field. We've run into just dozens of people with great stories, and so we figured, let's write them down. So if you like a good story, get you a copy of the book and know that every one of these stories are true stories, uh, true testimonies of healings, of deliverance, of salvation from the mission field. And then the second thing I'd like to ask you to do is to receive an offering f- for our ministry for, to help us get this school back up and running. If you think about it, everything there was lost in our time that we've not been there. So we need everything. to. We're getting the building fixed up now, but now we have to furnish it. So we need to get an industrial stove. We need to get an industrial oven. Remember, it's a residential program. The students live there. They eat there. They study there. We need to get beds, mattresses, pillows. We need pots, pans, dishes. TVs for the classrooms, desks, tables, chairs, office furniture, everything you can imagine for a residential Bible college, uh, we need it. So we're asking our sponsoring churches to give a sacrificial offering. And so the offering that you give this morning will, will go to help us get this school up and running. And again, we need to get these things by March 4th. 
Uh, so if you'll be thinking about that over, the, over this, the course of this month and anything you want to give to that during the course of this month, just make the check uh, out to the local church and put uh, Peruvian Bible School and your church will know how to get that to us. Then I'd like to ask you for a long-term commitment throughout the year to sponsor one of our students. Let me remind you what this is about. It cost us approximately $3,500 for every student that studies there a year. A year. $3,500 during the year, that's to feed them, to house them, and to teach them. We only charge our students $500, which means that we need to come up with $3,000 to supplement what they don't pay. And so rather than asking you to sponsor a student for $3,000, my wife came up with this great idea a few years back. Why don't we try to get 10 sponsors for each student, 10 people that would commit to giving $300 during the course of the year. So I don't necessarily need your money today, but what I need today is your commitment, that you would commit. I have a sign-up table in the foyer, and if you would sign up and say, Wayne, I'll, I'll commit to, to sponsoring a student this year. I have a sponsorship certificate. I'd like to ask you to take the certificate with you, bring it home. Uh, it's got the student's picture. It has their information, their testimony, uh, and uh, don't send the money to Peru. Don't send the money to Columbia. Just give it through your local church and mark it on your envelope, Columbia Bible School. Next year, I don't have any Peruvian students yet because we haven't opened the school, but this is, this is the last year that you're going to have an opportunity to sponsor students from just Columbia. Next year on the table, I'll have students from Columbia and Peru. So now you're going to have to choose. Ooh, man, do I want to do one from Peru or do I want to do from Columbia? Or maybe one of both. All right? Uh, now, I want to remind you that I believe very strongly in this partnership. And I'm not sure if you're aware, but the Bible teaches very clearly that when you cause something to happen, God sees it as if you yourself did it. You want some evidence there? Think about Uriah. Uriah uh, David, when Uriah was killed... David never touched the sword. David was miles away in his palace in Jerusalem when Uriah was killed. But the prophet Nathan recognized that David caused it to happen. So he told David, you, you killed him with your sword. You thrust him through with your sword. Well, David never touched the sword. But David caused it to happen. So God saw it as if he himself had done it. Now, when you sponsor one of these students, when you support my wife and I on the mission field, you're causing us to be there. You're causing the school to be operational. And God sees it as if you yourself were right alongside of us running the school. And I believe that so strongly. I'd actually like to give you an assignment. Tomorrow when you go to work, I want you to tell your co-laborers, your co-workers, hey, guess what? I'm running a Bible school in Columbia. And they're going to look at you and say, well, how are you doing that? And say, hey, that's nothing. I'm also running a Bible school in Peru. And I've planted 66 churches in South America. Well, how have you done that? Well, we're partnering with this missionary. 
And the Bible says when you partner with somebody, you're causing it to happen, and God sees it as if we ourselves are doing it. I believe that with all my heart. I hope you believe it. Thank you so much for your faithful support during these years, and uh, God bless you. And if you have any questions, I'll be at the table back there to, uh, to answer your questions.